Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Actually, uh, agree with Marx that uh, I don't think that uh, belief in God is grounded in a reality. Um, I think that uh, it is things that we stories that we've told ourselves, uh, fables that we've told ourselves to make the world more palatable, to uh, overcome our fears of death once we realise that we're all bound to die. And uh, I don't see uh, it corresponding to anything real about the world. And the more we know about evolution and the way. Uh, we have evolved, the more we know about the kind of wasteful amount of suffering that evolution brings, the harder it is for me to believe that the world was created by a, a divine being who is also benevolent to the suffering creatures that uh, he or she has created. Workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. The famous rallying cry from Karl Marx and Frederick Engels from the Communist Manifesto, published in 1848. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. How relevant is Karl Marx today? Does he still matter? And how have Marx's ideas and insights inspired generations of thinkers, artists, writers and politicians? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to tackle those questions with Australian moral philosopher, teacher and writer Peter Singer, whose latest book, Marks A Very Short Introduction, has just been published by Oxford University Press, where Peter argues, Das Kapital is a work of art, of philosophical reflection and of social polemic, all in one, and it has the merits and defects of all three of these forms of writing. It is a painting of capitalism, not a photograph. Peter goes on to state, Marx was devoted to the cause of human freedom. So what was Marx's theory of capitalism? What did he get right and what did he get wrong? I'm Peter Singer. I'm a professor of philosophy. I'm probably best known for my book Animal Liberation, written back in the 1970s. I've also written a lot about effective altruism. And I've written introductory books on Hegel, Marx and utilitarianism. Really well done on your short history of Marx. Uh, Peter, I have to say it was a very accessible and uh, very stimulating read. You throw out so many interesting questions in relation to Marx thinking, how we should understand him and also his relevance, I think, for today's world. And uh, it, it made for a great read. I might um, throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and sure we can uh, take it from there. Should everyone read Marx, do you think, Peter? Well, there's a lot of good things out there to read and... Uh, I'm not really going to say that everybody has to spend a lot of time struggling with Marx, but I do think that an educated person today should know something about Marx, so they could pick up the Communist Manifesto, for example, a fairly short and easy-to-read work. Uh, I wouldn't think that everybody ought to read Capital. That's too long and difficult, and you can just read the little summary in my book and uh, save yourself a lot of time. Is it fair to say, Peter, that Marx was one of the most ambitious thinkers of his time? And what I mean by that is he set out to change the world. Marx did want to change the world, certainly, and he certainly was ambitious. And he claimed that he had understood the laws of human development, the laws of by which societies change, and that as a result of understanding those laws, he could predict that capitalism would be overthrown 
and that it would be replaced by a communist society. So certainly there's uh, a lot of claims there, and you could describe them as uh, bold and ambitious, undoubtedly. It struck me as I was progressing through the book that in one way um, Marx was a better philosopher than an economist. Yes, I don't really think Marx was an economist. I think Marx offered a critique of economics from the outside. Um, His critique essentially was that, that economics takes certain laws as if they are always prevailing, as if they are somehow natural or given, whereas Marx, coming from a Hegelian background, sees things as progressing, as um, historically determined, and therefore as liable to change. So um, I think that that is, in a way, a philosophical vision that Marx is bringing to economics, rather than getting into the the detailed work of economics. I don't think his... uh, I don't think you really would want to rate him as a top-ranking economist, so I think he is better thought of as a philosopher. He really had um, a vision for how we should live, and certainly within that, it was all about freedom, wasn't it? Yes, and that surprises people, of course, who see uh, communism, uh, particularly the thing of communism in the Soviet Union and its satellites, as uh, something that Marx was promoting, and uh, that was certainly the antithesis of freedom. But Marx thought that communism would bring freedom and uh, had a very different vision of communism. And uh, again, following Hegel, he thought that human history was moving in the direction of the liberation of human beings from uh, all kinds of constraints and restrictions. Uh, And among them was the liberation from the alienation of labor, which uh, he thought was an important limit on our freedom. The fact that we we are working for others. We're not working for ourselves and we're working to enrich others who then, they're of course the capitalists, who then use the profits they make to further enslave us within the capitalist system. Yeah, I was very interested in what you wrote about Hegel and his influence on Marx. You write somewhere that the idea that, you know, Marx believed that the idea of history, that it was proceeding towards a necessary goal. And it got me thinking that, you know, can we can we actually look at history? Do you think it's fair to look at history like that? And is that not maybe a bit reductive? Well, um, I certainly don't think that we should assume that history is moving towards a goal. I think in a way that's a a pre-Darwinian view of the way things happen, um, because once we understand Darwinian evolution, we don't see it as uh, goal-directed, um, but rather we see it as uh, things evolving because they're better suited to the circumstances and not with any particular purpose in mind. Um, but Marx, although he was aware of Darwin, and uh, didn't want to apply Darwin to human history. Uh, he thought that that was a, a different realm. And uh, so I think that there is, in a way, he's, he's, he's accepted assumptions that uh, certainly go back to Hegel, but you could say go back long before Hegel. You could say they go back to religious visions of the world as having some purpose and heading towards some outcome, um, like in religious terms, you know, the apocalypse and the redemption of human beings. Uh, and... Uh, I think that that was a mistake, in a way. That's an unscientific way to look at history. Well, do you believe in human progress, Peter? Oh, I think one can believe in human progress, and I think one can think that uh, in the long run there are likely to be gains. Uh, Martin Luther King famously said the arc of history bends towards justice. Uh, I, th- I think one can argue that. I've actually written a book called The Expanding Circle, which talks about the way in which we are expanding the circle of morality, including more beings within it. You know, we used to start with a tribal morality, then maybe a, a national morality. Uh, then we have a, 
a universal human morality, but I believe we need to include non-human animals within the sphere of morality as well. So I think you can see certain progress, perhaps because of our capacities for reasoning and thinking about these issues. Um, but to say that it's sort of predetermined that there will be uh, a revolution which overthrows capitalism and where workers come together cooperatively and uh, own the means of production and use them for the benefit of all, uh, I think that's going too far. I don't think one can really read that into history. I suppose in, in a lot of ways we're all a little impatient with our history that we feel that it's not moving in the right direction and within that all the inequalities that have uh, been a centre narrative through our history. I'm just wondering, as a, as a moral philosopher, you've written a lot of books. What is your own uh, philosophy of history? Well, I, I think that uh, history is not determined, that we, we make our history. Uh, I mean, Marx would have perhaps agreed with that, though we make it under certain circumstances and constraints. But uh, I don't think I would claim to be able to see the future. I'm, I'm hopeful that we're moving in progressive directions, as I've said, and that we'll overcome the problems that we face. But uh, I can't be confident of that. If you take, for example, the problem of climate change, uh, this is a huge problem that will require cooperative action from uh, essentially all human beings, and we don't have a world government, so that means the nations that rule them. Uh, and if we don't get that right, then we could be in for a disastrous period in which large parts of the earth become uninhabitable. And uh, I can't have any real confidence that we're going to solve that problem, or for that matter, other problems that pose a, a risk perhaps to the very survival of our species. But when we look at um, market systems throughout the world, when you look at the state of globalisation and, and how it's impacting on people all across the world, um, it's very easy to kind of slip into this sense of um, despondency and misery. I think that that despondency and misery comes only if you really follow the newspaper headlines, which tend to report the bad things that happen. It's Obviously, it's news if a war breaks out somewhere, as, as in Syria, or, or if there's uh, terrible disasters that kill thousands of people. It's not news that uh, every day lives are being saved by progress in providing um, better health care to people or providing sanitation to people in extreme poverty, um, providing some basic health care, uh, developing economies. And, and, and in fact, if you look at it, there are fewer people, as, as a percentage anyway, uh, a smaller percentage of the world's population living in extreme poverty now than in Marx's time or probably in any time uh, since humans evolved. We're, we're down to around 10% of the world in extreme poverty, which is really pretty good by earlier standards. Well, Marx was all about asking questions and critiquing the world and the relationships around them, social, cultural, uh, financial and so on. So I'm just wondering, what questions do you think he'd have of how we're doing today? Uh, I mean, Marx raises questions about are we in control of where we're going or are we dominated by the economic system that we have? And some of the concerns about globalisation that you just mentioned would certainly be ones that uh, he uh, would have raised Today, that is, uh, are we really using our economic powers for the good of all, or are they enriching the few? Um, and if the interests of those few perhaps favour continuing to burn fossil fuels, even though in the long run that's going to be disastrous for everyone, are we going to be able to stop that? Um, those are questions that I think Marx might ask uh, if we were around today. 
But uh, I have to say, of course, if he were around today, he'd be very surprised that uh, capitalism is surviving and, and indeed you could say thriving and that uh, the world has not become substantially communist as he had predicted it would. What would you think he would make of our obsession with property? Well, uh, um, obviously, this uh, the, our concern with, with our own property, with private property, is contrary to what he would have expected to have happened because he thought a revolution was going to break out uh, quite soon, in fact, in various times during his own lifetime when there was an economic crisis. He thought it was about to occur. And uh, so he would be surprised that we still have such substantial amounts of private property, that uh, there are so many privately owned uh, factories and means of production. Uh, And probably if he was aware of the direction that China has gone, for example, um, he would be surprised at that too, because China has clearly, despite being officially ruled by a communist party, has, has clearly gone in a capitalist direction in terms of its economy, reintroducing much more private property than there was under Mao Zedong. So uh, I think Marx wouldn't quite know what to make of this and uh, would have trouble uh, readjusting his theories to the world he sees if he were to somehow come back to life uh, now in this 200th year after his birth. You argue that uh, Marx saw his role as raising the revolutionary consciousness of the workers and preparing for the revolution that would occur when conditions were ripe. Do you think there could ever be conditions when, um, you know, you could actually visibly overthrow all systems? Do you think that could ever actually happen? Like, I know we've had pockets of it, but like a complete global um, transformation, if you will. Well, you see, Marx thought that capitalism would be overthrown in the most advanced capitalist economies because he thought the more capitalism advanced, the fewer capitalists there would be uh, a small number would control and the remaining small capitalists or craftspeople would be forced to sell their labor and therefore would join the working class. And he thought that this was an unstable situation. So if the re- communist revolution had occurred in the most developed countries, that is in his time, that might be uh, the United Kingdom, it might be Germany, it might be France. Uh, uh, well, if that had happened, then those countries, of course, were the dominant military forces as well, and communism would then have uh, been established globally. But, uh, of course, that didn't happen. Uh, The communist revolutions broke out in countries that were less advanced, like Russia, or, in fact, that were completely agrarian, perhaps, like uh, Cuba. So um, that's why, uh, when the communist revolutions did occur, they did not achieve global communism, as Marx expected. And I don't see that uh, as happening. Uh, I can't see that capitalism is going to be overthrown in the foreseeable future. I can't see any path towards achieving that. So I think what we need to do is to work within capitalism to improve it incrementally, to reform it, to make it better for people at the bottom, but uh, not really to try and scheme and plan for its revolutionary overthrow. That just seems to me a, a futile task. And do you think it's? Uh, do you think you can meaningfully improve um, the um, um, capitalism? Do you think that's? Uh, do you think that's possible? As a system, oh, I do. Uh, in fact, I think that it is. That is happening. Um, uh, I mentioned I've written about the effective altruism movement, which is a movement that is trying to persuade more people to act altruistically to make the world better and to do it in a highly effective way. And I think there's no doubt that we are helping people in extreme poverty, who, of course, are not 
the people in developed countries. The, the really poor in the world are the people in developing countries. But uh, I think that we are making a difference. We are, uh, as I said, there are fewer people in extreme poverty as, as measured by the World Bank, uh, or if you want to measure the number of children who die before their fifth birthday, which is an, also an indication of, of extreme poverty, that number has fallen quite dramatically. It was 20 million in the 1990s. Now it's uh, below 6 million. So considering that the world's population has increased, that's a, a very promising sign. Um, I think that's, that's the kind of thing we need to do. We need to focus on helping people uh, who are very poor, people who are repressed, um, people who have troubles that capitalism is not helping. Uh, but I think with enough people working altruistically to help others, it really can make a difference and at least ameliorate the worst effects of capitalism. And what about the gigs economy, Peter, and some of the inequalities within the system and how the system is evolving? Like, how, how do you think you can change that and what would you advise? I mean, Marx would, of course, uh, have expected that, that any new technology uh, that was productive would be used under capitalism and that this would put some workers out of work. Uh, and he thought that that was a necessary part of capitalism, actually, to keep this kind of reserve army of the unemployed to keep wages down. It's interesting that uh, it hasn't actually kept wages down. Uh, Marx thought that the working wage would remain always fairly close to the subsistence level, uh, and that certainly hasn't happened in the uh, developed countries. Um, I'm, I can't predict what is going to happen with the gig economy, or for that matter with uh, automation, which I think is going to displace uh, a, a large number of jobs over the next decade or two. What I hope is that governments will realize that they have to provide a uh, basic minimum wage for everybody in society, a, uh, a universal basic income, and uh, that, that has to be adequate to give people uh, a minimally decent standard of living, because otherwise I think um, we are going to get into, into uh, a lot of poverty again with people who are unemployed and um, are not adequately supported. Could you have ever conceived the idea of intelligent robots taking over the world? You know what I mean? Like you, you started out in the, in the workplace over 40 years ago and now the biggest threat, I suppose you couldn't, may not say to critical intelligent thought, but kind of everyday jobs is intelligent robots. I know it is a reality and will become an increasing uh, reality in the next 20 to 30 years. Yes. Um, I think that uh, that, is something that I guess people have anticipated and it's a continuation of, of trends that uh, went on before, but um, exactly how we're going to handle it is the question. I think, you know, I, I think it's not surprising that we get more and more uh, automation and more and more robots, um, but what is uh, the real question is what will we do with this increased productivity? Because because it is a way of being more productive, and it's in, in some sense it's a good thing that humans don't have to perform uh, boring, repetitive tasks, and that they can be replaced by automation and, and by robots. But um, what happens to the to the productivity? What happens to the extra profits that are made from this? Are they returned to everybody, and in particular to the workers who are displaced, or um, are they going in? to go to increase inequality within the society. That's the, the real question we have to ask. So a new form of surplus value, is that what you're saying there, is it? <laughs> Actually, I mean, it's, it's curious because Marx thought that you could only get surplus value out of living labour, um, out of workers, in other words. And 
And one interpretation, at least, of, of what Marx says about surplus value is that if you completely automate the factory and you have no workers uh, running it, then uh, the capitalist won't be able to make a profit. Now, that doesn't seem to be right to me. I think capitalists will still make profits. Um, so it's not exactly, well, certainly not an extension of surplus value in Marx's term. It's, it's, it's something rather different. Have you ever asked yourself what the world would look like if uh, Marx never came into being? Like, I presume somebody else would have dreamt it up. Do you think it was, we were always going to get this critiques coming from somewhere? It just happened to be Marx. I think we were always going to get the realisation that our ideas and our politics and our religion is not completely autonomous. It doesn't just progress from its own inner logic, but it's affected by the economic structure of the society we live in, and uh, that this is an influence that we need to be more aware of. So that seems to me to be uh, one of Marx's valid insights, that I think if Marx hadn't had it, someone else would have had it. In fact, you could argue that Hegel had at least a part of that himself. Um, So, yes, that we would have. But um, in terms of the uh, theory of uh, economic development of capitalism, class struggle, revolutionary overthrow of capitalism and its substitution by communism, uh, I'm not sure that we would have got that. I think that uh, that is perhaps unique to Marx's thought. And it's interesting to speculate on how human history would have been different if we hadn't had that vision and it hadn't been followed and implemented, of course, by people like uh, Lenin in particular in the Soviet Union uh, and and how history would have been different then. Yeah, it's hard to think that we would not not be having conversations on class struggle (laughs) in a lot of different ways. You write something very um, interesting in the book. You say Marx's contribution to our self-understanding is another reason for ranking him high amongst philosophers. I thought that was very interesting because, you know, a lot of people would think um, about Marx and they think class struggle, alienation, uh, workers' identity and all of that stuff. But they possibly don't really give the same significance to the inner journey Marx was asking us to make with ourselves and how we're living on the world and the, and, and the conversations we're having on the world on what we're doing with our lives. Yes, that's true. But uh, I mean, for Marx, this was not so much focused on the individual as on uh, the classes and the necessity for the working class to understand their situation and uh, therefore to develop the revolutionary consciousness that would overthrow capitalism. Now, as we've been saying, I don't think that that is uh, a feasible outcome. So I think that uh, what Marx is telling us in terms of our self-understanding is that uh, we are part of a system, we are, we are influenced by that, uh, and collectively we are not really controlling our own destiny. And we need to do more in that way to work together with others in order to control our own destiny. As I was saying, for example, in terms of climate change, that this has to be joint action. We have to work together to solve it. Uh, unfortunately, of course, just in the, in the last few years, uh, what seemed to be previously a promising movement of uh, more integration of global institutions through the European Union and possibly through the United Nations um, has rather been going in the opposite direction, of course, with the, the Brexit referendum and with the election of people like uh, Donald Trump and the populist governments in uh, Poland and Hungary and Turkey. Uh, So I hope that this is uh, only temporary and that eventually the progress towards greater 
working together and self-understanding in the sense of recognizing that we're all in this together uh, resumes. But when that will happen exactly, I'm not capable of saying. I'm just wondering, Peter, as a moral philosopher, how do you explain why so many people seem to avoid or try and kind of just dodge out of thinking on um, the harsh, cruel realities of climate change? And, you know, it's not like people aren't doing much travel. If you, you know, we can see um, the damaging impacts um, climate change is having here in Ireland. But if you get on a plane anywhere in the world, you go anywhere in South or Central America or all across Africa, it becomes so visible so instantly. So I'm just wondering, how, how and why do you think people are just, just avoiding it? Is it that they just can't take it? Uh, they just don't want to see, look into the future? They just can't handle it? What is it? Uh, well, certainly part of it is that people don't want to look far into the future. They're more concerned with the uh, short-term, the, the present and the short-term future than they are with the long-range future. Um, that's uh, an unfortunate characteristic of many, perhaps most, human beings. Um, it's also the fact that I think we we have evolved certain moral responses to harming people in ways that have always existed. So, for example, if you see somebody uh, beating somebody up, uh, particularly beating up someone who's defenseless, we have a kind of instinctive revulsion to that. We have a negative revulsion to it because there's very visible harm uh, and we evolved in societies over millennia where people did that and... Uh, the societies work better when we stop that happening. But if you think about emitting carbon dioxide, um, we have not known that that is harmful until the last few decades, not nearly enough time to evolve any kind of response to it. And uh, so we don't see it as something that's really wrong. We don't see wasteful consumption of fossil fuels as uh, something that evokes in us a kind of a, a negative hostile reaction in the way that seeing someone beat, beat up another person would. So I think this is part of the reason why it's such a difficult problem for us to grapple with. Um, and the other factor, of course, is that we, as I said, we do need everybody to work in it. And, and each of us as individuals can say, well, I'd like to go on this holiday that involves flying somewhere and everyone else is doing it, so why shouldn't I do it? It's not going to make very much difference. Uh, all of those things, I think, work together to make it a really difficult problem for us to uh, resolve. And arguably, society is becoming increasingly more more individualistic. So, in order to solve issues relating to climate change, you need a collective response, um, intergovernmental, 